Hi, Stephen here. Just to make you aware that this episode includes Kendra's story, where she talks about her own experiences of mental and physical abuse. Welcome to Cult Hackers. My name is Stephen Mather. I'm these days an organizational psychologist. I was raised in a cult. So today I'm very happy to say I've got a really interesting guest. We've got Kendra Petty. Kendra is an author and she's also vice president of a corporation. So very interesting person. Um, I want to get her to tell her story. So first of all, welcome Kendra to the podcast. Thank you so much, Stephen. Excited to be here. Uh, Honoured to be invited. Thank you. Now you're very, very welcome. So maybe um, tell us a little bit about yourself, um, perhaps as you are now, um, because I'm looking at a very um, together person who, you know, has been a success in, in your career. Um, and it would be easy for people to think that that's kind of, it was easy, but obviously you've got a big story to tell. But where are you now in terms of your life and uh, and who you are? Sure. No, I uh, I do have a big story. I have a, a pretty bizarre story, a lifetime of trauma and tragedy that I've lived through, not just in my adulthood, but in my uh, in my childhood and my adulthood. But uh, I really have worked, particularly in the last five years, to heal from a lot of that trauma and tragedy. My focus in my adulthood was solely my career and building my career and climbing that ladder. And I moved a lot for work and every move was a promotion and, you know, a bigger package and bigger title. Uh, and that was really my focus and, and probably my outlet as well to a, to a certain extent. Uh, but, you know, today I'm much more balanced. I have a much more balanced life. Uh, I, I really enjoy travel, uh, rock climbing, off-roading, um, spending time in the ocean, snorkeling, and a little bit of free diving. So I, I try to stay very active, but I am an executive vice president for a firm in the U.S. Uh, we are uh, the largest firm at what we do, uh, and we're in, I guess, 463 cities, about fifteen, almost 15,000 employees. We're pretty spread out, so it requires a lot of being on the plane and traveling, but you know, I, I, I really enjoyed my career. It's been very good to me. I've been very good to it, but it's been very good to me. So li- living a life now of, mm. of thriving in all areas, not just so work focused. Sure. So yeah, I, I can definitely identify with um, with putting your heart and soul into career when you leave a, a difficult situation. I feel like I did some of that, um, probably to not to quite your degree, but, um, but I certainly, you know, the, there's you have to have a focus don't you after you've come out of something difficult and often career is is that focus i think Um, kendra tell it tell us about your um your story then i mean it comes in three or four bits really so uh you've written the book Uh, we should say the book is called i can't believe i'm not dead right very arresting title um (laughs) obviously i'll put a link on our show notes to your website and people can buy the book from there or access it from Amazon or, or the book shops. Great. So, um, yeah, it's well worth a read. It's a fascinating, uh, story and there's various parts and phases of your life. Um, we might as well go back to your childhood. We might as well start at the beginning. Um, so tell us a little bit about your childhood and, 
Um, there is a theme of coercive control and coercion throughout, and I want to pick that up because obviously that's very relevant to our podcast. But um, tell us a, a little bit about where you came from in terms of your childhood, please. Sure, sure. Uh, I was born on a farm in Oklahoma. It's a family farm. My father and his brother were were running the farm. It was they inherited from their parents, uh, and we actually got the first part of it in the Oklahoma land rush, which is a very historical event, and then built on it from there. The farm is still in our family, but I was not raised on the farm. We left when I was young, moved around Texas, Oklahoma, and Arkansas, settled in uh, the southern part of Oklahoma, about half an hour from the Texas border, uh, which is where I was raised. Um, I was When I was born, I was sprinkled Methodist. My father was Methodist. My mother was Baptist. Her father was a Baptist preacher. Uh, so we were Methodist for a time until we left the farm and then we moved around. And I guess at some point we started going to the Baptist church following my mother's religion. And until I guess about sixth grade, I we were just sort of a normal Baptist family going to church on Sundays, occasionally Sunday night, uh, nothing too intense. But um, when my when my parents divorced, my mother remarried and um, her and her husband started a church in our house. In our house, and I'll I'll get more into that. But mm. backing up, before my parents divorced, my mother was always had uh, men- mental instability issues. She's always had. She was not diagnosed for many many years until late adulthood, but she was very mentally ill uh, and very uh, violent. And as <clears throat> as we got older, as she got older, she got more violent. But so we, we dealt with my mother's mental illness and, and that created a lot of havoc in our family and a lot of arguing between my parents and uh, abuse from my mother. But my brother, when I was eight and he was 10 and he was my best friend, uh, we were together and uh, we were crossing a highway. Why children were allowed to cross a highway. This was the first time we were ever crossing this highway or any highway. I have no idea why we were allowed to do so, but we were crossing the highway and my brother um, was killed by a car going about 70 miles an hour. And uh, he was trying to get me safely across the highway. And he was his only focus was getting me across the highway and protecting me. And in the process, he was run over and it was horrific. I mean, it was absolutely horrific. And um, from that stemmed so many things with my family. My mother, she went even more mad mm-hmm. uh, and and could not control herself and her anger. I developed horrible night terrors and, of course, survivor's guilt and blamed myself my entire life for my brother's mm-hmm. death. My father left us after a couple of years because it was just so chaotic in our house with this grief that everyone was dealing with. Um, and that just really facilitated even more anger and madness from my mother. My mother eventually remarried her best friend's husband. It's a really kind of a bizarre story. He was our basically our neighbor across the street. It was her best friend's uh, husband, but her best friend died of cancer about a year after my brother died and uh, left her husband and their two young girls um, and my mother and this man got together and got mm-hmm. married. Mm-hmm. And so I, I inherited a whole new family, two stepsisters yep. and my brother and I, and, uh, that's when, that's when they started the church in our home. And I believe the church, if, you know, looking back and trying to f- figure out why 
this went down the path it did. I think they were both, well, first of all, my mother was very mentally ill, but I think they were both dealing with so much grief. You know, my mother losing her, her son and her best friend and her husband losing his wife. Uh, I think they were just looking for comfort and relief from, from that grief. Yeah, I suppose we can, you know, that's understandable. Um, unfortunately, the uh, the type of church that they started seems to be quite extreme. Um, and that's quite, a, obviously, you described this in your, in your story. Uh, you know, it was, it was horrible. It was absolutely mm. horrible. It was very oppressive. Uh, every day w- with my mother was 911, hair on fire, living in fear, walking on mm. eggshells, never knowing when she was going to explode or what was going to cause her to explode, but you can guarantee it was going to happen. Mm. And I was often the brunt of her anger, even though I really tried hard to fly under the radar and I was very afraid of her. Uh, she, she would just snap and she, she was extremely physically abusive, uh, very, very physically abusive. And, and she, when her and my father would argue or in later years, if she'd get angry at something while we were driving, she would try to jump out of the moving car, whether we were on the highway or on a side street. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was, you know, when I was younger, she used to choke me a lot and choke me until everything went dark and I saw sparkles of light. Uh, but she, it was really no holds barred. And when she wasn't being physically violent, it was verbal, emotional, mental abuse, just every day, just rage, so much rage. And then she coupled that with the Bible and God and this church that her and my stepfather started. And so that facilitated even more abuse in the name of God. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, we in in that cult, in that church that we started in our home and it grew so much that we had to eventually move out into like a rented retail space. We outgrew that. We rented a church. We outgrew that. We bought a building, you know, a bigger building. And I think it's still in existence today, but it, it was, if I had to describe what it is, uh, cause I don't remember the name of the church specifically. It was some family faith fellowship or something, but it was, you know, the basis was Christianity using the Bible, a lot of the old Testament. Mm. <clears throat> but, um, if I, if I had to align it with something or compare it to something probably charismatic Christianity, but it was one of those churches where everybody's screaming and yelling and singing in tongues and dancing around and jumping mm-hmm. over pews and, you know, laying your hands on people in tongues and casting the devil out and you're healed and people falling out on the ground, convulsing, um, just very over the top, over, over the top. But we also, you know, that was our home life as well. Mm-hmm. And we went to a Christian school. So everything we did every day was all encompassing the Bible, God, religion, everything. And it, we were we were raised in a bubble. We weren't mm-hmm. allowed to associate with people outside the church. We weren't allowed to watch TV or listen to the radio or read magazines or the newspaper or anything secular or of the devil. Uh, we weren't allowed to date, that's for sure. Uh, so we really went to our Christian school. We came home and read the Bible and prayed in our rooms we did our homework. We had dinner. We read the Bible and prayed as a family, uh, and went to bed and got up and did it the next day. You know, I, I was very involved in sports growing up, so that was a lot of my outlet. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was 
all-consuming all the time. So as a as a child, um, how old were you during this this time, Kendra? Uh, 13, maybe 12, but for sure right. 13 to 18. So I guess, you know, we normalize things, don't we? Um, even as adults, but as children, we, we do it particularly. So I guess, but you'd had some experience of life before that. So what did you make of all this behavior? You know, um, people screaming and um, shouting, speaking in tongues, um, all this sort of what would seem, which is really crazy behavior. How how did you make sense of all of that? Uh, you know, I did not love it, uh, but it was really just shoved down our throats and we had no choice but to get on board. There were four of us kids, no choice to get on board. So I, I did the best I could because I didn't want more beatings and I didn't want, mm. you know, to have to deal with my mother more, but I never ever was able to rectify in my mind, you know, if God is supposed to be a loving God, why is my mother beating the crap out of me mm. uh, on a regular basis? I mean, leaving bruises, cuts, uh, welts, things that I would have to explain away at school. And, you know, that happened even as a young child that happened well before the cult. Uh, but we, during this cult time, this five years or so, six six years of my formidable years that we were in this church, this organization, we weren't allowed to go to the doctor. I mean, there's this really bizarre rule. So we weren't allowed to go to the doctor because they would pray over us and God would heal us. So no proper medical care, you know, more, more abuse. Uh, and so it, I could never just rectify how a loving God could support mm-hmm. such anger and, and then on the flip side, we children were not allowed to show any emotion at all, ever. We could never get upset. We could never get angry. We could never cry. We couldn't even get overly excited and happy. We just had to be very level-headed. My mother had enough emotions for everyone. And so I never also could rectify how it was okay for her to be so over-the-top emotional and screaming and yelling and throwing things and breaking things and just melting down. Uh, while we children, we couldn't even give dirty looks to each other across the table as si- siblings mm. do. Uh, we we just had to maintain composure at all times, which I think you, now is you know I think back that's why I have such a good poker face. <laughs> <laughs> I was wondering whether you're able to um, ascribe any anything to it now as an adult as as you look back. Um, did. Do you, do you have any sense that your mother was doing this for any sort of logical reasoning, a reason in her mind, or was it just, just uncontrollable behavior? You know, was it, I suppose, was it, um, was it on purpose or was it just emotional chaotic behavior? I, I guess you don't know, yeah. but I wonder what your, well, I, you know, there, that's a good, that's a good question because in public, at least, in the years that I was growing up, in her later years, there was a number of emotional outbursts in public where police were called and, you know, it was very chaotic. Yeah. I w- wasn't around, but, you know, I, I had moved away uh, after high school to New York City and never went back to Oklahoma. But, mm. you know, when she was around my brother and in his neighborhood, some pretty crazy things as she got older. But uh, as we were younger and growing up, she people would say about my mother and this, I always found this so bizarre. Oh, your mother is so nice. She's Mm. so nice. And I thought Mm. she's such a good actress because if you saw her at home, it would be absolutely crazy, but she could turn it off like that. Mm. So while she has mental illness, she also had some ability when she wanted to dial it in. Mm. 
She just mm-hmm. chose to never dial it in when we were at home or alone or not in front of people. But she yeah. could she could turn that off in public when she needed to. That's really interesting, isn't it? It suggests uh, a knowingness there, doesn't it? That that uh, that she was able to do that. Um, so one of the things that we talk a lot about on our podcast is coercive control. Obviously, we we focus on on cults and cultic groups and practices, um, and there's quite a lot of discussion around how coercive control works. I don't know if you've if you've sort of looked into some of the the books around cults and so on. There's there's quite a lot of uh, theorizing around what's happening there. Um, have you done any of that work since you've um, reflected on it? Um, is that something you think about? Why was she doing it? How was she how was she manipulating you to behave in a certain way? Um, it, it's the sort of thing that sometimes we we think back on, I suppose. Yeah, I think I always just fall back to her being mentally ill. And there was a lot of mental illness in my family on both mm-hmm. both sides, mostly my mother's side, but also on my father's side. So I, there were just a number of family members that were mentally ill. Uh, and my mother, um, because I was closest to her, being the most um, prevalent to, to me in my life, but they each had brothers. My father and my mother each had brothers that were committed at a younger age, late teens and, and then in 20s. Uh, one of them, and they spent their whole life in institutions and died in their seventies in the institutions. And uh, my my mother's mother was allegedly mentally ill. I never saw any of those behaviors because she was on lithium her whole life. I wish my mother had been on lithium. <laughs> uh, my stepsister had had some brain damage when she was born, and so she had um, anger issues and was also very physically abusive and was in and out of institutions. Uh, So it was very prevalent in our home. So when I think about the religion and why it was what it was, I I really just revert back to her mental illness. But I also, in more recent years, have thought they were both going through a lot of grief. You know, my my mother with what she lost, but also her husband leaving her. Uh, So they, they were dealing with a lot of grief. And I feel like it was just a outlet for them or a comfort, but they really, it, it just took such a bizarre twist, you know, really focused on the old Testament in, in certain respects other than revelation and the second coming and the end of the world, yep. but uh, really focused on some of those things. And it just really got very weird in our household. Mm. And I talk about some of those things in the book. Yeah. Um, yeah. You talk about the demons and um, he sort of had a life of being told about demons and, um, I guess you believed in in or they you were taught about hell and wh- where you'd go if you were if you were bad and a sinner and all that sort of thing. Yeah, well, and and like many cults, our little our small group were the only ones going to heaven. Right. Every, the rest of the billions of people in the world were going to hell. <laughs> that's thought. that's pretty common. Yeah, yeah, isn't it lucky that we're born into this one true religion? Yeah. <laughs> oh gosh. Yeah, yeah. So in your book, you there's a few little pa- passages that are that really stood out to me. Um, one of the things there you say is, "My mother demanded order, obedience, compliance, and silence," um, and I think that is a beautifully framed sentence, but it. It says it all, really, and and growing up like that must be really, uh, must be really difficult. It it really was. I um, I was 
out of my siblings, I was a bit more of the wild child. Mm-hmm. Not not a bad child, just very active, very, very active, a lot of energy, always on the go. I was very funny. I was always trying to crack everybody up, um, especially my siblings. And so I was kind of the clown around the house when they weren't yeah. there. Of course, when they were there, there was none of that allowed. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it was, it, it was difficult to constantly be silenced. But when you're in that situation, and, and I'm sure you can relate to this, you, you kind of don't really know anything else. Right. You just become conditioned to that. And you, th- you think, and because I had been physically abused my whole life, and because my mother was always that aggressive, uh, and as I got older, it became more focused on me uh, rather than, you know, her husband left. And so she had to focus it on somebody. But uh, I just, I felt like everyone lived like that. Like I really didn't know that everyone wasn't getting the shit kicked out of them every day. This is it, isn't it? As, as children, we, we just accept what, what we have. Although you do talk in the book, how you got some, uh, a few uh, situations where you got to see what life could be like. And in a way that's even more heartbreaking because you, you, you go to a friend's house and, and you realize that actually people's homes are not necessarily chaotic. And that wasn't really until I think my senior year, because for many years we weren't allowed to to go to other people's houses, but I was allowed, I had a couple of really good friends in high school at my Christian school. And I was in, uh, in my senior year, I was allowed to spend some time uh, at their house. And, you know, one, one particular friend, her house was just very calm, a lot of love. Her mother was so kind and so sweet. Her father was so calm and quiet. And I just... It 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 re- it was really eye opening. But the biggest eye opening experience for me was when I went to Haiti in between my junior and senior year of high school and spent a summer there doing missionary work. And it was a summer of no beatings, no screaming, no yelling, being around people my age that were just you know air quotes normal, just sort of normal people. Uh, it was pretty. It was really an eye opening experience. Pretty pretty incredible. And so then I realized that. Not everyone lived like me. Most people don't. It took me a long time to realize that most people don't live like I did, but at least I got glimpses of that there could be a different way to live. And that really, when I got back from Haiti and started my senior year, that was the beginning sort of of the, of the end for me of mm-hmm. trying to figure out how to break apart from my mother and the church and, and all that that encompassed. It's one of the things that we hear quite a lot on on the stories of, of people who've been in cults is that um, that even it, a short time that that time away from the group, away from the control, away from the uh, you know that constant control of what you're doing and what you're thinking and how you're feeling, um, that can just be so important. And it sounds like that was that was the moment really, or that was it the was. year that made it. It was. It was. Thank goodness. Thank goodness. Because yeah, you know absolutely. who knows. Who knows? I could still be in that church and married with a bunch of kids and no career and still in Oklahoma. <laughs> yeah, indeed. And one of the questions that um, I think a lot of people ask um, those of us who were in cults and, and stayed for quite a while is, you know, why? Why did you stay? Why did you stay in the group? I think you explore this question um, in your book as well. And uh, what would you say to people who ask that question? So for me, uh, it wasn't just about the church. It was about all the trauma that I had been through. S- so much trauma. You know, my mother and her her uh, mental illness and her abuse, my brother and his death, which was catastrophic, the most catastrophic thing I've ever mm-hmm. been through. 
uh, and I was sexually abused by a babysitter. Yeah. Uh, my parents got divorced. So there, there was so much turmoil. So the church was just a piece of the turmoil. It was turmoil for sure, but it was a, it was one of many th- things. And so for me, and I think for many people in abusive situations, you, you do get conditioned to being and manipulated to being in those abusive situations. And it is, even though I knew I didn't want to be there, I didn't see a way out. And the, the crazy thing is at 13 in Oklahoma, at least back then, I could have moved in with my father, but I would have left my younger brother and I didn't want to do that uh, because I loved him very much and I was very mm. concerned for his safety. But I stayed for many, many, many more years. I did finally move in with my my father in the middle of my senior year after just a horrific, horrific beating from my mother, and I just couldn't couldn't take it anymore. Uh, but I, you, you get conditioned and you get manipulated and brainwashed into staying in those situations, and you, you don't really see a way out. Yeah, yeah, Kendra, have you? Um, I don't know whether you've come across a, a book by. Uh, she's a friend of ours on the podcast called Dr. Alexandra Stein. Um, and she's written a book called um, Terror, Love and Brainwashing. Um, I think you'd find it really interesting. She she talks, uh, she looks into attachment theory. Um, and I don't know if you've come across attachment theory before, but the, her, her looking at this in terms of um, cults is that you, you end up with this disorganized attachment with your your either your caregiver or your primary caregiver or the cult leader where they're the one that you go to naturally for love and care and and uh, for protection but they're also the the source of the fear um and this this pretty much keeps us brainwashed and screwed up essentially and that's that you know is one of the reasons why people stay in these situations because they're not able to think clearly it's really interesting yeah. No, no, I agree with that. I will definitely have to look that book up. But yeah. it's you know, it's the typical abuser, abusee, yeah. brainwashing, you know, yeah. I'm going to beat you. And then I'm going to, you know, every time my mother beat me, she made me hug her and tell yeah. her I loved her, which yeah. I found disgusting. But uh, I, I had to hug her and had to tell her I loved her. And that was for her, right? Because mm-hmm. she felt guilty of, of what she was doing. And so she wanted to hear that she was loved, even though she, yeah. you know, beaten me to an inch of my life um but no I, it's I another method of control that. for you isn't it it's another way Absolutely. to control you it, it it's all about control at the end of the day and it's it's interesting whether that you know you think about all the things that were happening around uh the religion and uh, the restrictions it's all about control and certainty and being able to to control everything a hundred percent a hundred percent that's really interesting. Um, something else that I'm going to quote to you back to your uh, yourself, your own book. So I hope you don't mind. But um, I, I think this this is just such a, a really interesting uh, sentence. I, I'd like to get your thoughts on on how you sort of see it. But you make the point that as human beings, our deepest instinct is to communicate who and how we are and use that information to connect with other human beings. Having no voice is a constant chipping away at your humanity. It's a slow death. That's just fantastic. Can you tell us a bit more about why you wrote that and what that means to you, Kendra? 
Sure. It, it took me years to find my voice, mm-hmm. years, well into my adulthood to find my voice. Um, it, it took a lot of work. There was so much trepidation and fear growing up of, of speaking, of, of doing anything outside of what my mother willed us to do. Yeah. And, and, he, and even my stepfather at, at some level, he was a great man, but you know, he also got pulled into this mm. craziness and, and helped facilitate this religion uh, and, and some, of the, some of the abuse. But uh, it was really my mother was the nemesis. But um, you know, not being allowed to speak growing up, not being allowed. We, we didn't talk. You know, our family did not talk. We didn't talk about emotions. We didn't talk about feelings. The only thing we talked about was God and the Bible. So when I left Oklahoma, I moved to New York City and eventually went to college there and lived there for eight years. I I wasn't a big talker and I didn't have a very strong voice. I remember a few years into living in Manhattan or living in New York, I was in Manhattan for school and I was uh, walking down the street, and I caught myself looking at the si- sidewalk, and I realized I always look down. Mm-hmm. Like when I walk, I, I'm always looking at the ground. I'm never making eye contact. I'm never engaging in you know deep conversation or meaningful conversation. And you know, even to this day, dealing with emotions is, you know, it's a hurdle for me because I wasn't allowed to deal with emotions growing up. I just had to suppress them. So finding my voice and and knowing how to use that voice. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm even still doing it today. I'm still learning today how to use my voice. Uh, but it is, it's it's a real it's a real thing when you're in, when mm-hmm. you're in a cult or an oppressive situation or an abusive situation. Y- you don't have a voice. Thank you for listening to Cult Hackers, an indie podcast. That means we're not part of a big media organization with huge advertising budgets and massive reach. So just by listening to this, you're supporting the little guy. The hardest thing for us is not content. We love recording episodes and talking to amazing and interesting people. Now, by far the hardest thing is getting in front of the potential millions of listeners out there with millions of podcasts scrambling for attention. And here's where you can help simply by telling people about the podcast. Just telling somebody about it can really help. You can share an episode on social media or private messaging using your app, or on some apps you can leave a rating, better still, say a few words. So please help us get cult hackers in front of more people. And now back to the podcast. Yeah, and and uh, I feel like there's also something there around identity and being comfortable with who you are and knowing who you are as well in a way that's kind of what's happening inside you know so you have to know that before you can tell other people who you are um and it feels like you've gone through that process um also sexuality you talk about in your book as well which of course is very very linked to identity so uh would you be able to tell us a little bit about that and your experience there sure absolutely so growing up we, as as I mentioned, we were raised in a bubble, so we weren't exposed to quote unquote the real world from like twelve years on up, and so we weren't allowed to date. We didn't talk about sex or sexuality. We didn't talk about any of that. We didn't talk about dating or boys or liking boys or liking girls. I did not know what the word gay meant. I didn't even know it was a, a thing, mm-hmm. uh, or that people were gay. Uh, I thought it meant happy. So, you know, when I left to move to New York City, I was, I was just very naive, 
very, very naive. And so, you know, it was, it was a big learning curve for me. But I also, growing up, always knew that I had little crushes here and there on girls, also boys, because that's how I was conditioned. Mm-hmm. Although, you know, I tried dating boys when I le- left my mother's home and it just was not for me. And when I moved to New York City, I it took probably a year before I realized that I was gay. Uh, and then it took another year after that before I started dating, partly because I didn't know how to meet girls, but part the other part was I just didn't, I needed to get my head around what that meant uh, yeah. and what that looked like for me. So it was a, it was a, a slow burn process for me just because I was raised so naively and in a bubble. But, you know, once I, once I started dating, that was it. You know, I never looked back. I, I, it, it was who I was born. Mm. Uh, it, it, may, it makes me very happy. Uh, and so I'm, I thrive in my sexuality mm. and uh, am very content there. So that's another battle with your upbringing, I suppose, that you had to, oh, to, to very overcome. Very much so. That mm. was a huge battle because when I left Oklahoma and moved to New York, I still sought out churches. I still yeah. felt like I needed to go to church, not that kind of church, but mm. you know, I, I went to several, you know, I went to a Catholic church to try it out. I went to several different kinds of Baptist church to try it out. And I just never felt comfortable, but, but because I, I had spent my whole life in that religion, not even just the cult, but before that we were in church mm. our whole life. Sure. And so I felt like I needed to be in church uh, and so when I realized I was gay, it took me a number of years of reading the Bible, referring to the Bible. And my first girlfriend uh, w- would spend time with me in the Bible. She was raised Catholic. She she would spend time with me in the Bible because I felt like I was going to hell. And so I was trying oh. to rectify that in my mind. How can I be going to hell if this is how I was born? And this is, mm-hmm. you know, today I say, if there is a God, if this is how God made me, if this is how I was born, then how yeah. could I be punished for that? And so oh. I spent... I spent a number of years in the Bible trying to figure that out. And I finally, I think it was probably in my later 20s, uh, just decided, you know what? This is ridiculous. Like, I'm a good person. I'm kind. I'm compassionate. I'm not a criminal. I don't commit crimes. I don't, I'm not bad to people. I am not going to hell. There's no way I can be going to hell. Mm-hmm. And so from there, it was a morphine of really just moving away from the Bible, religion, and God to where I am today, which I have this is a very strong statement, but I have a very strong disdain for organized religion and church. Hmm. Yeah. yeah. So I, I was going to ask you before, whether you, you believed the things that you were being taught. Um, obviously that's quite a difficult thing to know, but um, it sounds like you did it in some respects because you, you were still kind of thinking about it as you grew up. Right. No, for sure. For sure. It was so ingrained in our family. You know, all of our family were and are churchgoers, not to the cult, but to Baptist mm. church and Methodist churches and various kinds of churches. And, and many of my family still go to church to this day. But, you know, they're those Sunday kind of, you know, I go to church on Sunday and occasionally a Sunday night or a Wednesday night, you know, and I'll still have cocktails and I'll still say curse words. And uh, <laughs> so so that I, I always blows my mind, too. Like, you know, it's how, how you combine the two and, and find that to be OK. But it, it's not it's not my place to judge. Right. So uh, I live I live my life how I feel I should. But uh, it is. 
it, it really was hard to morph away from that and, and move away from it mm. uh, because it was so much of our life, our whole life. You know, being from Oklahoma, it's the Midwest. Everybody's, it's the Bible Belt. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, obviously, I, I'm from the UK, so uh, I, I've heard about, um, I know about it, but I've never lived it. I've never experienced a community so um, steeped, I suppose, in in religion. The UK is a very secular sort of society in many ways. Um, of course, we have the national church. We have the Church of England in England, but um, it's, it doesn't have a big part of most people's lives, if I'm honest. Yeah. That's that's great. Well, maybe mm. that's why London is my favorite city. <laughs> oh, great. <laughs> yeah, I love it. Yeah, I mean, it, it. we do have our problems, of course, but that tends to be not so much one of them, not not at the moment anyway. Um, so, you know, a listener might think, oh, thank goodness Kendra has got to the end of, of all the difficulties. But um, your career then, you, you sort of put all your efforts into a career and that that itself has some real challenges um, and then you have some health issues after that. So do you want to tell us a little bit about your, your life now in your career? You've um, you know, you've, you've made a decision to leave this, this life behind and, and you're, you're really focusing on your career. Um, what happens then? Uh, so I, I joined a firm. I lived in New York city for eight years. I graduated university. I worked in the fashion industry for a few years and did not care for it and really got tired of the cold weather in New York. So I left and moved to LA, which is where I started in the industry that I'm still in today. Uh, it almost, almost three decades ago. And so I, I decided that this industry was where I was going to focus climbing that ladder. And, uh, you know, I saw a lot of opportunity. This industry is completely male-dominated, has been completely male-dominated since I started in it. Uh, very few female executives, even to this day, very few female executives. So that in and of itself has been a real challenge, but that's for a whole nother book or two. Uh, but in my focus uh, to climb the ladder, I moved a lot, uh, as I mentioned before. And so moving around different, you know, from LA to uh, Dallas to San Antonio to Atlanta. I've lived in Chicago a couple times. I lived in LA a couple times, San Francisco a couple times, Vegas a couple times. Wow. Uh, I've just, I've uh, Cleveland, I've moved a lot, uh, all for work. And so, you know, there's a lot of sacrifice there, a lot of saying goodbye to friends and, and such that you, you make, and then having to start all over in that respect. Mm -hmm. But, you know, my career has been very good to me. So I try to be very good to it, but, during that time of moving, uh, I met a woman and ended up getting married, even though I really never had a desire to get married or have kids. I loved children, but I just, you know, that, that family life was not for me, most likely because I came from such a tumultuous family life. But we married and uh, I did not know that she was an addict. And so she was an alcoholic and a drug addict and when we lived in uh, San Francisco, crystal meth became her drug of choice, and she was very violent, very, very violent. And she broke my bones on a number of occasions. I have scars all over my body from her abuse. Uh, I had to have her arrested. I eventually divorced her, but it took six years to get out of that situation because we got married. She had a daughter, so I had a stepdaughter. 
Uh, I just felt this obligation of my, this was my family. I needed to fix this. I needed to figure it out. And I was very naive to drugs, you know, being raised the way I was raised. I really had no idea what an alcoholic or a drug addict looked like or acted like or, or was. And so that was really a trying time in my life. Um, physically, emotionally, mentally, it was chaotic, just like growing up. Uh, but you know, when she wasn't drunk or high, she was amazing. Absolutely incredible. Love of my life uh, up, up to that point. And um, which is why I had such a hard, hard time letting her go. But I left, I finally left her after six years of really trying to get her help and trying to fix things and realizing that I could not. And I moved them back to Texas, her and her daughter. And on the heels of that, I joined a firm that uh, I joined the firm, a, a firm as an executive vice president, number two in the company under the CEO. They owned a group of companies and I oversaw a couple of the companies. Um, the first year was okay. Uh, there was a lot of strife between the ownership, lots of strife. Like the, 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 there were five different owners from different families. They hated each other. They were always trying to get each other fired or sue each other. And it was, you know, trying to get the executives on their side versus the other ones. It was very stressful and a very bizarre situation for me because I had come from a corporation, a publicly traded company. And, and you know, that, that kind of behavior just <laughs> didn't sit in a, in a publicly traded company. It was very professional. Uh, and so I, you know, the first year I just scratched my head, thought what in the world, but it was, you know, it was a smaller firm mm-hmm. and, but I stuck with it because my, again, I wanted to climb the ladder and I th- saw this as an opportunity to, to move my way up. Uh, but after, the first year and going back to when you've grown up in a chaotic, abusive mm-hmm. environment, your bar for yeah, your level of accepting mm-hmm. chaoticness is really high. And, you know, my ability to recognize red flags and adhere to them and do something about them was very low. Uh, my boundaries, I had zero boundaries. Uh, I just, none. It took me many, many years to figure out how to put boundaries in place. So I, I stayed, even though it was chaotic in that respect. But then I started discovering things that this company w- was doing that I started questioning and pushing back on. And as as things unfolded, they were I discovered they were illegal activities, money money laundering. I, I can't even go down the list. It's mm-hmm. it, it, there's a lot more in the book, but mm-hmm. mafia or mob organized crime style crimes, and and so discovering that you know this is obviously an organized crime family or families involved in these many illegal activities. But still, it took me time to, to really realize, you know, as I started questioning these, these things and pushing back on them, I still didn't realize the, the velocity of it. Mm-hmm. And then things really started going sideways. You know, my, just the relationship with the CEO and the ownership was tainted from all the strife and all these things that I was uncovering and questioning. And then I started to get very upset that the CEO had recruited me from my old firm because I had a very respectable uh, career. I was very well respected in the industry and I knew it's a small industry, so I knew everyone. And now I'm at this firm that's, it's, it's catastrophic, this firm. I mean, it's going to implode. Um, People could potentially go to prison. And so the questioning and that strife led to, you know, I, they, they, I found listening, a listening device in my office, remnants of one in my car. So they were obviously listening to me 
and probably other people. And because I was so um, discontent and unhappy when I was in my car talking to my girlfriend or friends or family or in my home, I thought I was speaking privately, but obviously they were listening. And so some of the things I said about them were not, not, I mean, they were truthful, but they weren't nice. And I would talk about some of the things I found to the people I knew, still being naive, not knowing they were listening to me. Um, And then about four months after I found the listening device, I started getting sick, very, very sick. My skin turned gray. I got sores in my ears and in my throat and on my tongue and in my mouth. Um, I, I was, I had horrible headaches. My, my eyes got very swollen and puffy. Um, my bones and my muscles and aches, just so much body pain and joint pain. Uh, my voice got very raspy. I could hardly talk. People around the office would say, what is wrong with you? And I would say, I, I don't know, but I feel horrible. And I began to realize that it was something in my office that was making me sick. You know, I thought it was in the vents. Maybe it's mold. I'm checking the vents. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, long story short, and there's a lot more detail in the book about this, but long story short, I found poisons. I found poisons in my office. I found poisons in my home. I found poisons in my car. I was unknowingly inhaling the poisons, wearing them on my clothing and ingesting them. And they were, they almost killed me. I mean, they were making me very sick. I was lucky that I didn't die because one of the CEOs was killed. Uh, so I'm, I'm lucky that I'm, I'm alive. Uh, and it, and from there being exposed to those chemicals led to years of diseases. I developed Graves disease and then I developed cancer seven and a half years later. Uh, so it, it was many, many years of just a health struggle from being exposed uh, to all those chemicals. Did you, um, did you go to the police? So I, I hired an attorney. I not immediately, I was so sick. I mean, I was so sick and I was in and out of emergency rooms and just trying to understand like, what is this and why is this? And it, and it took time to uncover the different places of the poisons. I first found them in my office and then, I don't know, a month and a half later, two, two months later, I found them in my home. And then I found them in my car. So it, it unfolded slowly and I would remove myself from those poisons. I had a corporate apartment in a different town, uh, city. And so I would go, you know, go there. And uh, I shared that with another executive. Was, uh, we'd, when we were in town, we'd both stay there. And so uh, well, it was two bedrooms. So we had separate bedrooms. But sure. And so I, that was a, a safe place for me to go uh, to feel better. And so it just took time in my last year there to figure that all out. But yes, at the end, I hired a t- an attorney. Um, you know, we talked about going to the police. I was very afraid because now I had finally realized who these people were, what they were capable of. Um, like I said, they killed the CEO. Uh, so I was very scared. And so talking through this with this attorney, he said, you know, it's going to be very difficult to show who put without videos to prove who put these poisons here. And I said, okay, well, if you really break it down and I break it down in my book, who had access, how could they get in it? Who had motive? Like it's, it's very clear who did it. All I did was work. So there was no one else in my life that would come and put these in different places. And, um, and so it was very, very, very clear to me, but we, I did not end up going to the police because I, I was afraid. I was absolutely afraid for my life. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this, this attorney really discouraged. He said, there's the police aren't going to do anything because there's no way to prove they did it. Uh, and so for me, my focus became on healing, healing my body, 
Uh, I really shut down living in fear for years and years and years. I didn't let people in my home. I shut down my social media. I stopped making friends. I feared for my life. I installed the best security systems. I constantly looked over my shoulder. I thought, you know, they weren't successful in killing me. Are they going to come back? And this has been, this has been almost 15, yeah, 15 years, 15 years. So it's a long time ago. Some of them mm-hmm. passed um, or retired and much older. They were much older than me. So they're very much older now, but um, it, it was, it was just really a time of living in fear and being, being afraid for my life. That's horrifying. Um, you, you put your, um, your sickness down to that. So, um, you're then diagnosed with cancer, um, after this, um, which I, I know you, you feel is, a, is, is a, as a result of that, um, another battle, another battle you have to go through. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I developed Graves' disease first, and Graves' disease is a uh, autoimmune, a thyroid disease. And there, okay. the way you contract Graves' disease, it could, it can be in, you know, in your genetics with your family, which it was not for me. Uh, there can also be triggers for it, and two of the biggest triggers are. Um, exposure to chemicals, which I was, and multiple infections. And after I was exposed to those chemicals, it broke down my immune system so badly that I was developing multiple infections, infection after infection. I was constantly in the ER for one infection after another. I could not fight anything off. And this went on for months and months and months. And then I developed a whole new set of symptoms, lost half my hair, went down to 89 pounds. Like like, like immediately, I just went into this this whole different arena of symptoms and seeking help. Then uh, I was diagnosed with Graves' disease. And so I fought Graves' disease for over a decade before I finally had to have my thyroid removed uh, because the chemo just wrecked it further. But the gestation period for cancer when exposed to chemicals is seven to eight years. I was diagnosed with breast cancer at seven and a half years. I have absolutely no doubt that it was that exposure to those chemicals so, uh, such a high concentrate for so long that gave me my cancer. Cancer does not run in my family. And I, years before I would tell my friends, if I ever get cancer, it's going to be because of those chemicals. Never thinking, never, ever thinking I would get diagnosed with cancer. And when I got diagnosed, it hit me like a brick. And I immediately said it was because of them. So um, obviously that's another battle then that you've, you've had to fight. Um, can can I ask how how you are now? Have you have you fought that? Are you well? I'm cancer free. I get checked right. about every three months. Um, you know, it was seven years ago that I was diagnosed. I had a double mastectomy. Went through chemo reconstruction. All of that was horrific. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, just terror. You know, cancer is such a horrific disease. I mean, it's just horrible. Anytime I hear of anyone getting diagnosed with cancer, it just breaks my heart because it is just debilitating. But I continued to work during all of that. I, you know, I took like a week off when I had my double mastectomy, but the week, a week later I was back in action on calls, answering emails in meetings from my home. And then, uh, once I was healed enough from the double mastectomy and I started chemo, I lost my hair pretty straight away and I continued to travel. I lightened my travel load a bit, but I continued to travel and make do presentations and have meetings and public speaking, uh, ball headed with no hair. And I would make a joke. Oh, you know, I lost a bet and had to shave my hair or whatever to make it make it a little less awkward. But um, it was 
cancer is just horrific. And the after effects, at least for me, and everybody's body is different. Everybody's cancer treatment is different. The after effects of chemo were hellacious. Uh, I mean, to this day, I still still deal with physical things from being poisoned from Graves' disease, but now it's a hypothyroidism since I don't have my thyroid, and from chemo and cancer. So it, it has just been a challenging now 15 years of you know, physical things mm. and, and, and mental to, to add on, on to that. So um, obviously your, the title of your book is, I can't believe I'm not dead. Um, that's why it's called that. Um, yes. For obvious reasons. Um, yes. So, I mean, we can definitely describe you as a survivor. Um, so let's, for the next sort of few minutes that we've got left, um, explain to us how you have managed to survive and, um, you know, what, what are the, the lessons that you've learned that maybe you can pass on to others? Sure. Sure. I, uh, I, like I said, five years ago, I hit a wall with this continuous cycle of trauma and tragedy and PTSD. And thank goodness I was born with just an incredible inner strength. I was very fortunate to, to have that from the get go. Uh, out of the womb. My mother said that at two years old, I was picking my own clothes and didn't want her to pick my clothes out. Uh, so I had this, just this uh, fortunate inner strength that really helped me through everything. But five years ago, after after so much trauma and so much tragedy and still dealing with PTSD and living in fear, still living in fear five years ago, still not letting people in my home and just being afraid to meet new people, and checking my rearview mirror every time I pull out of the, the garage, are they waiting for me? I hit a wall and I just said, enough is enough. I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. I'm sick of living in fear. I'm sick of this life. I'm a very social person. I miss having a big group of friends. And so I really started to dig in and learn and read and try to figure out how I could heal my body, my mind, my soul, my heart, in hopes that I could change that traje- trajectory of trauma I said, I've got to live the rest of my life in peace and I've got to find true happiness and learn to thrive. And so that really was my path for the last five years. And I talk about some of it in the last chapter of the book, but, you know, practicing gratitude was a huge piece for me, a huge Mm -hmm. shift for me, practicing forgiveness, which is very difficult. uh, But, you know, practicing forgiveness for all those people that hurt me, but also forgiving myself and all of that is a work in progress. Uh, but also learning to let my walls down and let people in and learning to love again, big shift. But I think the, the biggest thing, and I'm, you know, I, I could probably write a whole book just on this is it's so important to not get stuck. Don't get stuck. And, you know, I got stuck when I was a teenager. I got stuck when I was in a marriage. I got stuck only for three years, but I got stuck in a very toxic work environment. Don't get stuck in a toxic situation. You've got to find a way to move out of that so that you can begin your healing journey and your healing path. Great. Um, I, I want to just home in on that practice gratitude for a moment. It's, it's, a, it's an interesting turn of phrase that um, I'm not familiar with. So tell us what practicing gratitude means. What is that? Sure, sure. Uh, so I had always been very grateful for the adult life that I had created for myself, the career and my success. Uh, very grateful for that. But in terms of practicing gratitude on a whole new level to help me heal, it really on a daily basis focused, you spend time with a gratitude journal or some kind of a journal and reflecting on all the things that you're grateful for. And it could be down to just the simplest thing. 
uh, but really focusing every day, taking time to focus every day on gratitude. And it and it's a sci- it's a proven scientific fact that practicing gratitude increases endorphins, and increasing endorphins helps with your depression level, your anxiety level. It truly makes you feel better. And but then further beyond just the gratitude journal, you know, practicing it with people and verbally, and making sure that people feel that gratitude and that you show them that you're grateful that, that, that they've done an act for you or an act of kindness or that you're grateful they're in your life. Um, but separate to the gratitude. And I, uh, just to touch on this is really focusing on removing toxicity in your life. And so mm-hmm. a big shift for me then was the few friends that I had and the few family members that I associated with, I had to start moving people that were toxic out of my out of my life. And so focused on the positive, positive energy, removing the negative and the toxicity situations, not being, not letting myself stay in any toxic situation, uh, but moving out from that and, and continuing to practice gratitude. Brilliant. Kendra, I'm, I'm going to practice gratitude right now and say, thank you so much um, for coming on the, on the podcast. It's been absolutely fascinating and delightful to talk to you. Thank you so much, Stephen, for having me. I'm I'm really grateful for the opportunity. This has just been fantastic. 